So again, I first became interested in Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was back in the 60s. Then I came back home for a while and tried to practice by myself. And very soon I realized I needed a teacher. It was just getting too confusing. I was trying all kinds of different things that I had heard of without any clear methodology. So I decided to go back to Asia to look for a teacher. And I ended up, after various travels and visiting ashrams in India, visiting different teachers, I ended up in Bodh Gaya, which, of course, is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And at that time, it was a very small village. There were only about six or seven Westerners there who were studying with this teacher, Anagarika Muninja, who became my first Dharma teacher. And very soon after I arrived, we were sitting around on the roof of the Burmese Vihara, which was like the Burmese monastery or rest house for Burmese pilgrims, but Burma at that time was closed, so there were no pilgrims, and it was just the few of us who were practicing. We were sitting around on the roof of the Vihara, and Munindraji asked us each a question. He asked each one of us why we were meditating, what we were meditating for, what we were practicing for. And I think that's a very important question to contemplate. And as Kamala mentioned last night, you all made a great effort to be here. Are you clear about your purpose? Are you clear about your motivation? For me, it was very clear at that time. When Munindraji asked, I knew that I had gone to India, I wanted to practice for awakening, for freedom, whatever that might mean, I wanted it. And when he taught the Vipassana practice, when he first gave the first instructions, it was like immediately coming home because it was so simple. It was exactly what I was looking for. There was nothing to join. There were no big rituals. It was just sit down and observe what's happening. And Munindraji expressed it very well. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. It seems so obvious and so much common sense in it. Now, there are many different methods and techniques of Vipassana practice. There's not just one way to do it. And all of the techniques are rooted in one very well-known discourse, sutta, of the Buddha's teachings, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is often translated as the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. And the Buddha opens this discourse with a very bold and unambiguous statement. It's a declaration. I'd like to read to you just the opening paragraph of the sutta. It says, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, 
for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Mindfulness of body, of feelings, of mind. And the fourth one is often untranslated, mindfulness of dhammas, which is best understood, and somebody translated it as categories of experience, which we'll talk about later. I love the boldness of the Buddha statement here. He said, this practice of the four foundations of mindfulness is the direct way to overcoming suffering, to the attainment of Nibbana, to the attainment of freedom, this very practice that we're doing. So as we explore these four foundations over the next days, and the various ways of developing mindfulness of them, I think it will be helpful to clarify a few key terms. Because as the teachings have been translated from Pali into English, Pali is very is a very precise terminology in terms of meditative understanding and understanding of the mind. When it gets translated into English, there are often confusions. So it's important to define some very key terms. And the first one I'd like to talk about is the English term consciousness. So the way we're using this word, consciousness, it means the very ordinary ongoing process of knowing different objects of experience. So it's that faculty of knowing. And generally in Buddhist discourse, it refers to the knowing of the six sense objects, the five physical senses and the mind. Okay, so consciousness means knowing. This process of consciousness or knowing is going on all the time in all beings. It's going on in animals and humans. It's going on in infants and babies and adults. The same process of knowing is happening. So it's interesting just to watch, you know, a young child or a baby or a pet. Around Barry in Massachusetts, uh, there are a couple of neighborhood black labs. I don't know if you're familiar with black labs, but they are great dogs. <laughs> they are so funny to watch because <laughs> they're just so out there in what they're doing. They're completely involved in navigating their world, which is largely the world of smell. You know, and you can just see, you know, this being <laughs> navigating through their lives. Consciousness is there. The knowing is there of the different smells and sights and sounds and, you know, feelings in the body. Same consciousness, same sense consciousness that's in us. Okay, so this is just the quality of knowing. Simple, ordinary, 
everyday knowing. So a couple of things to understand about this. Consciousness and its object, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, consciousness and its object are arising simultaneously. They're arising together, passing away together. New object of consciousness arising, passing away. So this is our life, this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. It's very ordinary. This is how all beings are living their lives. That's the first term, consciousness or knowing. The second term I'd like to discuss is a word which sometimes gets confused with the English word knowing, and that is the term mindfulness or awareness. And this is the quality in the mind that is aware that we're knowing. That black lab, as far as I can tell anyway, (laughs) was not aware that it was knowing. It was just knowing. It was just running around. Mindfulness is that quality. And again, we have to be a little careful with English, but just to get a sense of it, it's that quality which remembers or recollects or knows that we're knowing. Do you see the difference? So there's the ordinary consciousness, which is just rolling along, which is how we go through our day, taking care of our various responsibilities and involved in our various activities. We're just kind of going along like the black lab. But then sometimes, and perhaps more frequently with practice, we become aware slash mindful, and we're using these terms synonymously here, mindfulness and awareness, with practice and with increasing frequency, hopefully, we become aware that we're knowing. We become mindful of it. So it's like a moment of going meta, M-E-T-A. We're going meta to the knowing process. So this is very significant. It's like we're stepping out of the dream for a moment. We could call it, on some level, moments of awakening or moments of waking up, you know, waking up from the dream. So just as a simple example of this, you know, and one with which you'll be very familiar, just remember or imagine yourself at the movies completely absorbed in the story. You know, where we're really engaged. It's a good movie and it engages our emotions and our attention. We're fully engaged in the story. And then perhaps something shifts, you know, for a few moments. And we remember that we're knowing. We remember, oh, this is just a movie. And then we're back in the story again. That's a moment of stepping out of or going meta to the flow of consciousness where we become mindful that we're knowing. Don't underestimate the value of these moments. 
one of the most important insights, and even for those of you for whom this is the first day of the first retreat, this insight, I'm sure, is already apparent, and that is how often our minds are lost in the story of our lives. We're lost in the various sense impressions that are coming, you know, the sights and sounds and tastes and sensations in the body. We're very lost often in the movies of our minds, the plans and the memories and the judgments, the fantasies, the images. It's as if we hop on these trains of association and are just carried away to unknown destinations. When we hop on, we have no idea where the train is going. And then five seconds or a minute or half an hour later, we have another moment of mindfulness. Oh, I've been thinking. That was just a thought. But all that time, we didn't know. We We were lost. Now, often we call this the wandering mind. And often in meditative circles, that's referred to. But I think there's an interesting nuance here. And that is the understanding that the mind actually is not wandering. The mind is not going anyplace. (laughs) It's always right here. It's simply that objects are arising and we're not aware of them. We're not mindful of them. And we call that lack of mindfulness, particularly of mental objects, the wandering mind. It's helpful to realize that it's not that the mind's wandering. We have to make some big effort to drag it back. It's already here. And so all we have to do is again become aware of what is arising in the moment. You know, there's a subtlety there, but it changes the emphasis in practice. It changes the quality of energy in our practice. It's important not to underestimate the importance of seeing this, seeing how often we are lost or unaware of what's happening, because most people don't know this about their minds. You know, if you go out on the street, just ask somebody, you know, do you get lost in your minds? Are you aware of what's happening? Oh, yeah, I'm aware. I know what's going on. I don't get lost. Because unless we've taken time to actually stop and look at what our minds are doing, it's not something that's obvious because we're simply caught in that flow of consciousness. Right? So we don't know this about ourselves until we look. And if we don't know it, and we see this at work in the world, then there's not very much motivation to awaken, to wake up. So I'd like to read to you, it's like a little ode to mindfulness. And this was a spontaneous song by the great Dzogchen master Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. 
you know, in the in the Tibetan tradition, uh, often the great masters just these spontaneous Dharma songs. I'm not going to sing it. But <laughs> so this is what he said. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. So this is not a trivial undertaking. Just waking up into mindfulness of what it is that's arising. As we relax into the awareness of what's arising, as we settle back into this mindfulness of different sense objects, including objects of mind, we begin to feel greater subtleties. We begin to feel greater nuances in both the objects themselves and also greater subtleties and nuances in the attitudes in our minds about what's arising. We become more intimate with the body, and I'm sure you have felt that today. As we're paying more careful attention, as we're becoming more mindful, we start feeling sensations, different subtleties of sensations of pressure or tightness, vibration, pulsing, warmth, coolness, There's a whole range of physical energies that we begin to open to. And in a very important meditative move, we go from the abstract concept of body, of head, of back, of knees, to the direct experience of the sensations themselves. So this is a very important shift. And as we stabilize the awareness, the mindfulness, instead of simply moving through the world, you know, intent on where we're going or what we have to do next, we become more mindful of shades of color, shades of light, nuances of sound, different subtleties of emotions, like the whole world begins to open to us Through what? Through the power of mindfulness, through the power of awareness. But mindfulness or awareness is not enough. As powerful as it is, in the experience of awakening, 
by itself it is not enough. And so here we come to the third important term, this consciousness, which is just the ordinary black lab knowing. There's mindfulness or awareness, in which we remember or recollect that we're knowing. We begin to experience the greatest subtleties of the object and our attitudes about them. The third important term, which is key on this journey of awakening, is wisdom. Now, wisdom arises out of awareness, and it combines the qualities of investigation, of what the Buddha called right understanding, right attitude, with mindfulness as the platform. That's the foundation. Without mindfulness, none of this happens. As we stabilize the mindfulness, the awareness, with that as a platform, we're no longer lost so much in the stories of our lives, we then begin to investigate. What is the nature of this experience? And we see that whatever is arising, whether it's in the body or the mind, is simply expressing its own nature. When we feel pressure and investigate it, we begin to experience the nature of pressure. That's how it manifests. That's how tightness manifests. That's how vibration manifests. It's interesting that one of the meanings of the term dharma, which we use so often, one of its most essential meanings is nature. And so what we're discovering with wisdom and everything that we attribute to a self, to an I, is really just nature unfolding. And it's wisdom which investigates that so that we are actually learning something. We're learning something about the nature of this body, the nature of this mind. So as one example of wisdom at work, and something you've probably been exploring today, we can see how wisdom investigates and understands different kinds of discomfort and pain. Has anybody felt some discomfort today as you're sitting? (laughs) Probably. So we, we feel a sensation, we become mindful of it, we become mindful of what it is, and then wisdom investigates it further. So, for example, we might feel the pain, become mindful of it, and through an observation begin to understand this pain is a danger signal. Now, if we put our hand in fire, mindfulness is not enough. <laughs> burning, burning, <laughs> burning. We need wisdom to come in and say, this is not good. <laughs> this is a danger signal. Remove the hand. So wisdom has to look and understand It might understand that the discomfort is not a danger signal, but is really a process of unwinding of accumulated tensions. And this is a big part of meditative practice and experience. We come here 
most of us, we carry a lot of tension in our body just from the accumulation of the many, many actions and reactions of our lives. You know, so we're holding a lot. We come and we sit, we make the space. We become aware and it allows for the tension to unwind, to release. Often, at first especially, that's experienced as pain. Now we can be like this, shoulders up to the ears, and it's so tight we don't even feel it. We become a little more mindful, we begin to feel what it is that we've been carrying. So we feel it as discomfort. And in that awareness, if we can stay with it, it's actually a great release, a great unwinding. So that's another fruit of investigation. We begin to see that and learn that. Wisdom might also see that pain or discomfort may be coming from too much efforting. Now, this is common in practice. We can be so intent on doing it right or getting something or having some experience and we're, we're sitting here, I'll be mindful if it kills me. You know, and just the whole body and mind is getting more and more tense. Of course we're going to feel discomfort you know, and pain. So wisdom can see that. We have to investigate. We have to look. And wisdom doesn't even stop there. Not only investigating, for example, what the pain or discomfort may be about, we can begin to investigate and see with wisdom the attitudes in our mind about the discomfort. How are we holding it? Checking the attitudes becomes a very important part of our practice. Now, there might be fear of discomfort. It's okay now, but there's a half an hour to go, and I don't know if I'm going to make it, and we just start building up this whole feeling in the mind. Well, there might be self-pity, you know, sitting and feeling pain and thinking, oh, everyone around here is just sitting in great bliss, and I'm the only one in pain, and we just kind of go into a whirlpool of self-pity or avoidance. You know, just putting our attention anywhere but the pain. Sometimes it's just basic aversion. You know, I hate this pain, <laughs> and I want it to go away. What's interesting here is that although, and especially with practice, we may become more and more skilled at recognizing the sensations that are there, Okay, we're mindful of the sensations. It very often happens that the attitudes about them go unnoticed. Right? And they are acting like an unconscious filter on the experience. We become too identified with them to actually discern them clearly. So I want to give you a very... Um, what, I, what for me has been a very useful uh, technique for checking in with the attitude of remembering to check in. Pay attention or learn to recognize any time you feel a sense of struggle with the practice, 
you know, you're sitting, you're walking, you're going through the day, and you just, you just have some sense of struggle that's going on. Instead of drowning in the struggle, that feeling of struggle is telling us something very interesting. It's telling us, it's feedback, that something is going on in our bodies, in our minds, that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So struggle always signifies something, go- something is going on that I'm not accepting. So then, if we see that, if we recognize that, a very uh, useful technique is to simply settle back. You've recognized that you're struggling. Settle back and simply ask the question, okay, what's happening? What's going on? And what I found is that question takes my mind from whatever it's fixated on to a place, again, of openness, of receptivity. Okay, what's happening? Oh, boredom. something uncomfortable in the body, some unpleasant mood, whatever it is, we settle back, we open up, we ask the question, what's happening? And it allows us to see what it is that's arising that we haven't accepted. So it's at this point that wisdom really begins to understand, oh, pain is like this. Tightness is like this. Fear is like this. Self-pity is like this. Wisdom brings understanding to us. A very common conditioning among meditators is a conditioning that often is the cause for a lot of discouragement and impatience. And that is the conditioning we have that pleasant means good and unpleasant means bad. Now how often have you gotten up from a sitting and it was all light and blissful and you're happy and somebody was there, oh, how was your sitting? Oh, great sitting. Yeah, it was really great. And then you, maybe you had a sitting and you're full of pain and restlessness and boredom and how was your sitting? Oh, terrible sitting today. Not any reference to mindfulness at all. You know, the fact that we might have been lost in the bliss and mindful of the pain doesn't count for anything. Pleasant, good, unpleasant, bad. This is, this is true of very experienced meditators as well as people just beginning. It's a very deep conditioning. There's a, a little teaching from the Burmese master Steve mentioned, Shui uh, Yumin Saido. And he, w- he was reputedly you know, uh, an arhant, a great enlightened being. Of course, there's no way to actually know, but he was highly revered and respected in Burma. So this is what he said. 
You have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dharma? <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, oh, it's so true. <laughs> you don't want even the tiniest bit of unpleasant experience. You know, our minds are conditioned like that. So we need to pay attention. Because it, it's not the way of the Dharma. The way of the Dharma is to be minor, pleasant, fine. We explore and investigate that. Unpleasant, fine. We explore and investigate that. And through this exploration, we can learn a lot about the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness, the nature of wisdom. I had a very striking experience with this. A couple of years ago, it was January, And probably most of you live in California, you're not really tuned into this. But January in New England (laughs) is cold. And this was a particularly cold winter. And I went down with friends to the Caribbean, you know, for a week. And it was beautiful. It's like every sense door, kind of like Hawaii, you know. It's just every sense door, sense object balmy breezes and beautiful sight, everything beautiful. The day I flew home, it was like 80 degrees, you know, in the Caribbean. Flew home, it was 20 below in Barry. It's like a hundred degree difference <laughs> in a few hours. So I got back to Barry and, you know, stepped out of the car. Whoa, this, is, this was intense. So my first, just my very first you know, response was, boy, it sure was nice in the Caribbean, and this is very unpleasant. But then mindfulness kicked in, and I just got very interested. I just got very interested in the experience. What was actually going on? So I became mindful of the knowing mind, became mindful of consciousness, all consciousness was. It knew this or it knew that. And so by being mindful, it started to reveal a little bit about the nature of consciousness. So then when uh, Saito Tejaniya was visiting just this last spring at the Forest Refuge, we were talking about a little Dharma conversation. I was relating this story. So I told the whole story and then I ended it just a little tagline, but it sure was nice in the Caribbean. (laughs) And he, he made a comment which just illuminated something further. When I said that, oh, it sure was nice in the Caribbean, he said, that's just the nature of feeling. Feel the nature of the, the mental factor, the mental quality of feeling. Feeling simply tastes It tastes the pleasantness or unpleasantness of an object. That's the function of feeling. So it's not that I enjoyed, you know, one rather than the other. It's just the nature of feeling. Feel the nature of the the mental factor, the mental quality of feeling. Feeling simply tastes. 
it tastes the pleasantness or unpleasantness of an object. That's the function of feeling. So it's not that I enjoyed you know, one rather than the other, and it wasn't simply coming to the realization, oh, knowing doesn't care. It was saying, oh, there might be enjoying of this, not enjoying of that. So then that's just the work of feeling. Feeling is following its nature. Steve is going to talk more tomorrow night about how defilements come into this whole play. Do you see how it's all just nature unfolding? And wisdom is that function which... This is not a usual first night talk, but (laughs) might as well just jump in. Another interesting thing about all this, you know, as we're looking more carefully, we can see that there can be pleasant mental feeling around unpleasant physical sensations. There can be unpleasant physical sensations, and we can have a pleasant mental feeling because the mind could be calm, steady, open, peaceful, even rapturous. Lots of pleasant mental feelings can be there in the experience of something unpleasant in the body. Well, that's useful to learn. One time I was in Bodh Gaya with Manindraji. I had a really, I had a bad headache. We were in the bazaar, just at a little chai shop, tea shop. And I was telling him about the headache. And he just looked at me and he said, Oh, I hope you are enjoying it. (laughs) And at the time I looked at him and I didn't really quite get it. But since then, and with practice, one begins to understand all this about the nature of the mind. So with this grounding in awareness of different sense objects, we become increasingly attuned to the patterns and conditioning in our minds. You know, all the many attitudes we have about experience. We see the likes and the dislikes and the judgments and the desires. You know, that endless inner commentary that's going on about experience. We begin to see really clearly on retreat the tremendous power of projection the projections we have about other people, you know, those we barely know and those we're really close to. They may be quick little thoughts, you know, just a little passing judgment about somebody. Or they may be whole stories that we create about our fellow yogis. We may not even know them you know, have said anything to them, and yet it doesn't stop our mind from creating a whole scenario. Or it may be the endless self-judgments that arise in the mind. All of this is something to learn about. We want to understand. We want to bring wisdom to it. And we can learn about our minds and ourselves in any circumstance. It doesn't have to be on retreat, although... In retreat, in retreat, we really have an opportunity to see very clearly. But I had one experience of watching a pattern in the mind, a self-judging pattern, that, that was so 
ridiculous that it just punctured it with humor. So I was doing a retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barry, and you know, just like here, everyone, all the yogis had yogi jobs. So mine was veggie chopping. And I really liked that job. I like to do the veggie chop, but I'm not from the line of great cooks. In fact, I'm not from the line of any cooks. <laughs> so it's, you know, I don't have a lot of expertise in this. And unfortunately, my fellow veggie chopper, she was great. I mean, she really knew what she was doing and fast. Okay, so one day, go into the kitchen. The cooks give us this pile of eggplants to slice, you know, for eggplant parmesan. So I'm slicing the eggplant, and the slices are not coming out that even. You know, some are narrower, some are wider. But I really didn't give it any thought. I, you know, it's good enough. So we, we finished chopping the eggplants and, you know, give them to the cooks. And then at lunch, I go to lunch and I'm waiting for the eggplant parmesan. But that, there was no eggplant. I mean, it was tofu or something. So just wondering what happened to the eggplant. And then the next day, I said, well, maybe they're keeping it for the next, the next day. No eggplant. Third day, no, egg, no eggplant. <laughs> so then my mind really went into high gear. <laughs> they didn't like my slices. <laughs> they were too uneven in the pan. They had to throw the whole thing out. They're going to never ask me to chop veggies again. I just went on this whole big thing. But as I said, it was so ridiculous <laughs> that at a certain point I just started laughing. Later, I found out that they had kind of prepared the eggplant parmesan and just had frozen it for some future, some future lunch. It had nothing to do with how I sliced them. <laughs> but our minds do this, you know, and so we want to see, we want to be able to recognize that it's doing, bring some wisdom to it. You know, so that when we don't live our lives playing out all of these various projections. Now, what becomes very obvious through practice is that we don't invite all these thoughts. We're not sitting here saying, okay, thought, come now, let me get lost in some eggplant saga. <laughs> they just come. But through a growing awareness and investigative wisdom, we begin to see the absolutely critical distinction in our experience between being lost in a thought, unmindful, and being aware that we're thinking. This distinction is absolutely critical. And again, from Shui Yumin Saidao, he said, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. This is important because often people come to practice, thinking happens and there's a feel I'm doing something wrong, or I'm not getting it, or it shouldn't be like this. It's not about 
not thinking. It's about practicing and learning to recognize when a thought is present. So we can actually become both mindful of it and then with mindfulness as the platform, actually investigate with wisdom a very interesting question. And that is, what is a thought? Now we are so concerned with the content of our thoughts. Our whole lives basically is just a dance with the content of our minds. But if we're mindful that we're thinking, we can then ask the further question, we can then investigate with wisdom, well, what is this phenomenon? And it's a tremendously powerful question because thoughts unnoticed have this almost coercive power in our lives. Thoughts are like little dictators in the mind. You know, when we're not mindful of them, they're just do this, do that, go here, go there. Our whole lives are just, it's like we're slaves to these thoughts. But what's so amazing is that when we investigate and we see with wisdom what a thought actually is as a phenomenon, not the content, what is it as a phenomenon? There's not much there. A thought is, it's so insubstantial. It is so empty of substance. And that contrast is both startling and very freeing. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, that gets played a lot on TV, so sometimes when I'm channel surfing, you know, there's, there's Dorothy in Oz. And one time I just caught a few minutes just when Toto pulls the curtain away, <laughs> you know, and you know, the big blustery wizard, the all-powerful wizard pulls the curtain away, and it's just this guy, this little guy, <laughs> manipulating different levers. Well, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is in our minds, right? And when the curtain is down, it's as if there's this powerful force directing things and we pull the curtain away with mindfulness, we see just the very empty nature of thought itself. So here too, this is just an example where we can see the difference between the three terms I've been highlighting of knowing, awareness, and wisdom. So people are knowing the thoughts all day long. And the thoughts are going through, and if you went up to somebody and said, oh, what were you just thinking? They could tell you. Right? They're knowing the thought. Consciousness is there. Mindfulness is being aware that we're thinking. Okay, do you see the difference? Mindfulness is aware that the thought is present. And sometimes we're aware after it's already over. You know, and then we rec- oh yeah, I've been thinking. Sometimes we're aware in the middle. Sometimes we're aware right in the beginning.
And then it's wisdom, which actually looks into the nature of thought itself. Thoughts are happening many times a day. Very often, we're lost in them for some period of time. In the moment of waking up from being lost, in the moment of mindfulness, what's the attitude in your mind? Very often, the attitude is one of self-judgment. Oh, lost again. I'd like to suggest an alternative. Instead of falling into self-judgment, about not having been mindful, how about taking delight in the experience of having awakened? Every time you come out from being lost, every time you become aware that you've been thinking, remind yourself to delight in and investigate the quality of that awareness. There can be a joy many times a day when you delight in waking up, rather than just feeding the pattern of self-judgment about having been lost. So I would just like to close with a teaching from one of the great Thai masters, the Thai Forest, from the Thai forest tradition. He's actually the, the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. His name was Ajahn Mun. And he was this extraordinary being, very realized and uh, had all kinds of powers of mind and visiting different realities. It's said that when he taught, you know, his his disciples, he would sit up front and the monks would be sitting in front of him. And he had the power, as it said, uh, just to read, to, to understand the minds of the monks. So he would call out to the assembly what the monks were thinking. <laughs> now there's an impetus to be mindful. <laughs> So it's just to assure you that I, and I don't think any of my colleagues, have this power. (laughs) Uh, But it it could be a useful, uh, skillful means just to think of it. Anyway, this is what Ajahn Mun said, and I think it's, it's a very powerful statement. Of the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dharma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding the Dharma. Once the mind is known, once the mind is known, then the Dharma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked.
This is what our practice is about. It's understanding the nature of ordinary consciousness. It's understanding the power of waking up through mindfulness. And it's understanding the freedom that comes from investigation, that comes from the cultivation of wisdom. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So let's sit for a few minutes, please. So it's very simple. Practice being mindful of what you know. The knowing is going on all by itself. Practice being mindful of what you know. This talk was given by Joseph Gold Stay at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 21, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.